One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello, you're very welcome to the Tonight Show. Social Democrats leader Holly Cairns joins me in studio to discuss some of the key issues likely to dominate this year's elections. Also on the programme, almost a thousand asylum seekers are now left without shelter in Dublin amid an acute accommodation crisis. Plus, we look at the impact that housing migrants in hotels is having on local tourism. And suppliers of dodgy boxes face a fresh crackdown. We bring you the very latest. Cairns first became a Social Democrats TD just four years ago, having been elected to a local council the year before that. In March 2023, she became the party leader and just last Saturday gave her first party conference speech where she outlined her vision for a better Ireland. But is that a vision that could lead her to be a kingmaker in the next government. Well, Holly Cairns joins me now here in studio and thank you for coming in to us this evening. I want to start with one of the stories we're going to be covering in the next part of the programme and that is the fact that it's likely that there'll be over a thousand international protection applicants without accommodation in this country by the end of this week. The figure currently at 970. If you were in government tomorrow, Holly, what would you do about that situation? Immediately, we would begin the process of providing the six reception centres that it was, that was advised for the government to begin that initially when the war broke out in Ukraine two years ago now and the sixth one would be finished now. So we need short, medium and long-term planning in relation to this and I think that would be the very first thing we would do. We would also deliver on the promise for modular homes, you know, we promised 700 modular homes when the, the brutal invasion first happened and we're nowhere near that figure and we need an update. The last figure I saw was in the 300 and something. So there's a number of things that the government could have done where we wouldn't be in a situation now, which I have to say is absolutely shameful. We have nearly a thousand people who arrive here. Ireland has a legal and a moral obligation to provide accommodation for people who are fleeing war, persecution, whatever it might be. And the fact that people are arriving here and have to sleep in a tent. My heart was actually broken hearing people speaking about this saying that they don't have access to toilet facilities, to showers. You know, to be treated in that way you arrive in a country, I think, is something that we should be really, really ashamed of. And OK, so modular housing would be an answer. That's probably a medium-term solution. And a longer-term solution would be to introduce and to build and to deliver those proper migrant reception centres, which hasn't happened yet. But in the short term, they're here today. Where do you accommodate them? In the short term, I suppose they need to find more emergency accommodation. That is the reality. And I think it's really quite shocking that this has become sort of accepted. And that's anything we're going to end up with tent cities. So find as, as much as possible emergency accommodation, but start the process because we wouldn't be in this situation if they had taken the recommendation. Can I just as well to, to rewind? At that time, 
when, and to be fair to Minister Roger Gorman, when he went into office, he wanted to end direct provision. I think everybody accepts that that didn't, that wasn't an option anymore when the war broke out in Ukraine. But then Catherine Day produced another report recommending those six reception centres. And that Zero. hasn't been implemented and, yet. And we're in terms of, here, of that they won't even give us the location for those centres until after the local elections. This kind of politicking and delay is completely unacceptable when you consider the conditions that these people are sleeping in, sometimes in sub-zero temperatures. In terms of the emergency accommodation, as it stands, that emergency accommodation tends to be hotels in this country. By and large, uh, that seems to be what the government is using. Um, when you look at somewhere like the D Hotel in Drogheda, and we've had the controversy there over the last week with local people, local businesses, some local councillors, actually some local TDs saying Drogheda could lose 56% of its tourism beds in March, if that goes ahead, it has a real impact on people's livelihoods, on people's businesses. It's an issue for people. How do you address that? It's a huge issue for people. And like that, a hotel in a community like that is often the place as well where we see, you know, the, the funerals, the weddings, the christenings, like it's all of those different things. It's, it's a big part of a community. But ultimately, this is what happens when we have a government who continuously relies on the private sector to provide these public services. What have they done? They've asked people to provide emergency accommodation continuously. They haven't provided any state provision for that whatsoever. And we kind of, we get what we vote for, essentially. But then do we, we ignore need to change approach. the concerns of people? No, well, nobody's ignoring those concerns, but I think everybody recognises that we're in a complete pickle now because the government haven't done those things. And ultimately, Ireland is a really welcoming country and because we know what it's like to, to emigrate and to go somewhere new. And, you know, oftentimes people aren't treated with a, a warm welcome. And I think that is why Ireland has been so, so welcoming and why communities do embrace people into their community. But it's not good enough that we continue down this path of, you know, using things like hotels for accommodation, relying on the private sector. And here, this is the playbook. Government after government, after government, say, throw the kitchen sink at the private sector to solve a problem. It doesn't solve the problem, and they keep going with that approach. Okay. We see that in health, in housing, in now integration. You know, it's, okay, it's let's a disastrous talk about approach that has to change. Uh, housing, because that is going to be a major issue in the next election. It is currently a major issue for people and for all parties. And a pledge that you made at the National Conference on Saturday was that the SOC Dems could deliver 50,000 homes if they were in government. Given the fact that 32,500 homes were delivered last year, you would have to increase, you'd have to scale that up by almost 50%. And you said on radio the following day that you could do that within two years. How would you achieve that? So, again, at the moment, what the government is doing in terms of delivery of around that, they've gone up to about 30, between 32 and 33,000 is, again, a complete reliance on the private sector. So we've seen missed affordable housing targets throughout. At the moment, we could ramp up delivery in that sector for you know, affordable purchase homes and, for, and cost rental to about 10,000. And that's not just me saying it, you know, don't take my word for it, but the Construction Federation of Ireland have said we could have capacity to deliver 50,000 homes per year. Um, the ESRI have said that is but the bare minimum. If, if so that we think capacity was there, Holly Cairns, that those homes would be being built. Well, no, like at the moment, what they're doing is they're, you know, I'm just kind of making because what we've heard, I suppose. No, I don't believe they would be doing it because what they haven't been doing is focusing on key in this crisis is the delivery of those affordable homes. And they've missed, I think, since this government okay, took but office, they've delivered 1,300. Affordable homes, you're talking about 50,000 homes in 
total. I'm saying that needs a ramp up of nearly 50% in the delivery and speak to any construction body in the country, speak to the Fiscal Advisory Council. They all talk about the capacity in the construction sector, within the sector. So where are the workers coming from to ramp up from 32,000 to 50,000 in two years alone? At the moment, the commercial sector, the demand for that is massively slowing down to a, a huge extent. So we see a huge move of construction workers from that sector into the delivery of homes, which is really, really welcome because that needs to be the priority. And crucially, if you consider we need to deliver, what we need to do That's is... That's a major assumption to make. Those workers could easily move into infrastructure projects, into industrial projects. But like I said, Keir, this isn't just me making presumptions either or, or making up numbers or figures. This is, for one, what is the bare minimum that we need? And it is for two, what the Construction Federation of Ireland have said is deliverable with the capacity that we have at the moment. Because I do think it is so important when it comes mm. to housing that we don't make broken promises, basically, that we don't over-promise and under-deliver. And that's why we've gone for a target of 50,000, which we think is deliverable. And that's according to the Construction Federation okay. of Ireland. But it's, it's those... needed ac- according to the ESRI. And it's the absolute bare minimum. We have to provide that. Uh, but if those workers, let's say, there's less activity in the commercial sector, they're going to move over to the residential sector and start building extra houses, then a Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael government would benefit from that also. So what's but the their, in policy? Their approach isn't ever to focus on the affordable and social homes. So what we've seen is, and to be fair, their, their social homes have increased, but what we've seen is a constant supply of housing, the only increase from the private market. And that is a really important role to play. But no, but I'm just talking moment, about, I suppose, the numbers. Yes, because but the I'm numbers saying you're saying get... 32,000 to 50,000. What I'm saying to you is, if there's workers coming from the commercial sector because the activity there is down, then a Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, Sinn Féin government, they'd all benefit from those move, workers moving across and you'd see an increase. Yes, but then what kind of homes are they going to be delivering? And what we have in the middle of this housing crisis is an affordability crisis. So in order to deliver homes that are actually affordable, they need to be delivered through the local authorities and they need to be to massively ramp up the supply through housing associations. If we get that figure up to 10,000 per year, which is deliverable, that for one will stabilise the market and hopefully bring the prices down in other sectors. But also all sectors have the capacity to increase but the vast majority of the increase that we're aiming for is in that sector. Because okay. that is the thing that That's will stabilise the, the market and bring down... Yes, the 10,000 And affordable. an additional in social homes. And when you have that move... Okay, but from the, the, the 10,000 affordable that you say is part of yeah. your target, that's 5,000 rental and 5,000 purchase. Cost rental and affordable purchase. Okay, so it's 5,000 homes would be on the market for people to buy. Out of the 50,000 figure, that would leave, let's say, approximately 38,000 homes that would be out there that would neither be social homes nor affordable homes. They would be homes for people to buy who don't qualify for those two schemes. Sorry, we're saying uh, 12,000 social homes. Yes. So, it, so 12,000 social homes, 10,000 10, affordable, affordable homes, homes, and there could be 28,000 other homes. And How Kira, are you going to make to those well, homes to affordable to ramp people? up from there as well. Like start del- with a delivery of aiming for 10,000 affordable and 12,000 social, but also aiming to massively ramp up from that. This is the figure that we're setting because it is important not to overpromise and underdeliver, but we do need to increase that further from there. But yeah, okay, we but need we're to talking increase about delivery. within the next two years. So yeah. I'm going to say, let's say you hit that 50,000 target and there's 28,000 homes there available for people that aren't social homes and aren't affordable housing. How do you make those houses affordable 
for people because you say you're going to scrap the first house scheme and the help to buy scheme and there is clearly an affordability gap there. So how are you going to address that? The way to bring down the cost of homes in the market more broadly is by delivering more of those affordable purchase homes and more social homes and more cost rental homes. That's why that would be the key focus. That is the thing that this government is missing in its approach. And that can be seen in all of the figures that they produce, that they are not delivering on those affordable homes targets. 1,300 since they took office. OK, that and just is... thinking about, I suppose, for the other people who'll be watching this evening, yeah. who are not going to be entitled, who won't come within the criteria that needs to be met to um, qualify for an affordable home. How do you make those homes affordable for people? If because that won't happen in two years. If, you're if those homes are massively increased, it starts to, to stabilise the market and generally try to bring down the cost of homes because... Look, it is about affordability and at the moment we've seen housing associations can deliver homes and this is because when housing associations do it, they don't have the land cost, the development cost. Crucially, they don't have the profit cost. So that's not taken into consideration. Okay, people and could that's argue the that's the Land Development way. Agency. That's what they're being tasked with doing too. The Land Development Agency have let to deliver a single home. That is the reality. So... It, we can't really compare the two. But if we massively ramped up the delivery of through those housing associations, it could make, it would make a massive, massive difference. And at okay, present, you say affordability then is the word that you're talking about there. We had Sinn Féin saying that 300,000, they think, is a reasonable sort of house price for Dublin. That's where they'd be aiming. Are you broadly, you said that's not possible to achieve overnight. Um, so I don't know how, how that works with what you're saying, that other prices would come down within the two-year period. But do you broadly support the idea that house prices need to fall? Absolutely, but they're not going to come down to 300,000, for example, in, in, in Dublin overnight, and that is the reality. The only way homes are being delivered at that price at the moment are through those housing associations, but they're being delivered at about 319,000 in Dublin. It was about 200 and something before the, 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 like the price of bill costs and all of that has gone up significantly. So the only way to deliver houses at that price that is affordable for a family to buy a three-bed at around 300,000 is by delivering those homes through the housing associations and if they were if they like massively expanded the amount that they were delivering of course then it would bring down the price of them because of the economy of scale and at present here they're not supported at all in kind of the um the planning and design stage of their developments so if they were okay that would speed things up. We can massively wrap up the delivery in that area. And no, so that's your, not going to bring you'd house be prices for five down. Years. So how many um, affordable houses would you aim to build in year three, four and five? We'd ramp up massively from the 50,000, hopefully. But look, that's the starting aim point that we get to. But in terms and of I'm not going to make, within that. I'm not going to make promises that I can't keep. I don't know where we go to from there. We have to get to that. That's the focus. That's the bare minimum that's needed. And you try and increase from there. But that's the, the Construction Federation of Ireland have said that we can build 60,000 a year. Obviously, we'd be aiming to, to massively ramp it up year on year. But it's important to be honest with your viewers, with the public, about where we think we can get to in the, the medium term, really, in a term of government. That's our focus. And look, delivery from the private sector is key. But those prices aren't going to come down quickly. It will take a lot of delivery of the other types of housing to do that. And they will come down some bit. But we're not going to get down... To 300,000 in Dublin and I think it's important Where to be honest with people about how much it will come down will depend on how much we can deliver of those but, other types of housing and that will be our focus. But, but you've said that you can deliver 10,000 affordable and 12,000 social homes. If you do that, where is it going to leave house prices? I don't know the exact figure for that and I'll be honest about that. I don't, th how the market will go depends mm. on other variables as well but it would, it would reduce it some bit 
And that's the important thing. That's what we have to work towards. But I'm not going to pluck figures out of the sky and, and, and dish them out to, to viewers as if it's fact. I think it's really important to be honest with people. OK, let's move on to uh, RTE, which has obviously been in the news for, for months now. Um, it's been reported this evening that the Taoiseach has told his parliamentary party uh, that he believes RTE needs to be brought within the remit of the state auditor. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think it's important. And look, I think with RTE now, this has been going on for so long. And I think people are actually at a bit of a, a point of kind of outrage fatigue when it comes to this particular issue. So I think in addition to that, what we really need to see from the government at this point is their plan for the future funding of our public service broadcaster. You know, that is key because what, what we need to start really focusing on now is RTE need to build, rebuild trust, instill confidence in the public in their role because never has it been more important to have that public service broadcaster when misinformation is spreading like wildfire online. We really, really need that public service and the public need to feel like they're getting something for the, for, from you, their public service broadcaster. As a party, you disagree with the idea of direct exchequer funding? We think there should be part direct exchequer funding, but it should be guaranteed multi-annual. Mm -hmm. And then we think it can't be just that because... So the public would still have to pay something? Something. But to explain, mm. the key thing here is that we need there to be kind of independence and the relationship between the public service broadcaster and the people is key because we, we can't have a situation where a government in the future may lean on the broadcaster in a certain way because they're solely reliant on them for funding. So we think there should be a, a decreased licence fee and it should be re like TV licence. It's out of date. That's not how we all consume mm. our news. It should be you know, about public service and, and not a TV licence as such. And we also think, crucially, that social media companies need to pay a levy because a lot of the work now is correcting the misinformation that they're not managing to keep down okay. on their platforms. And so you said the charge... I think it needs, needs to be the three-pronged three approach. The, the charge, because this is what a lot of people will be interested yeah. in, a, a version of the TV licence, but it wouldn't be called a TV licence and it wouldn't look like the TV licence anymore. But do you think it should come down to what? So it's about 160 euro at the moment. So if we have the three-pronged approach to about uh, more than a third of that, probably around um, 100 euro, I would say, for the 160 roughly. But the exact figures, I don't have in front of me. Um, so something That's like that would be a three-pronged okay. approach. Um, but I think that people, it's important to highlight this as well. You know, a lot of people pay their licence fee and they expect to get the, the public service in return. And they recognise the importance of that relationship with the public and the broadcaster that's separate to their tax-paying money, you know, these suggestions of revenue collecting it. It's not a tax. It's a public service. And it needs to be, you know, the key thing here is that RTE rebuild that trust with the public so we feel like we want to pay our licence fee. OK, you've said they need to rebuild the trust. You said they need full transparency. You've called them for the publication of details of all of those recent exit packages what does Kevin Backers do in the case where there's a confidentiality agreement? Yeah, and look, if there's a legal kind of binding agreement there, there's not much that you can do. But I think the surprising thing is that they entered into those agreements when they were in the eye of the storm. I don't think they realistically can. And I think that's probably the reality. But I think it just calls it, there's a judgment question there. Why did they enter into those agreements at a time when it was clear that transparency was going to be key moving forward for RTE. So you say they entered into those agreements. Kevin Backhurst has a judgment question over him? RTE making those agreements in the eye of the storm of all of this going on, they should have known. But it was him individually. Be... I mean, he's been clear that he agreed to it. So do you question his judgment now? I think he needs to be clear that going forward, 
transparency will be a key part of what he does. Okay, just very quickly, um, we do have an election coming up. It'll be in the next 12 months. There was a bounce, I suppose, after you were crowned the new leader of the Social Democrats. Um, but the polling data would indicate that there hasn't been this big sea change now. It's gone back to about 4% uh, since your promotion. Do you take that personally? No, not at all. And I'm under no illusions about the work that we have ahead of us. And I think, you know, there's a change happening in Irish politics. I, th I can feel it. I think we can all feel it. The tide is turning. It's the first time ever since the foundation of the state that it's not a given that we'll have a government led by either Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael. Would you support that a Fianna Fáil Fine Gael coalition? Can I just finish the answer to this question? Because the first one, because I think it's important. So this change is coming. That is seismic in and of itself. There's a change coming. People are starting to consider all of their options. Mm. Our job is to grow the party, to put social democracy on the ballot. We want to give as many people as possible the option vote for us. We know a huge body of work okay. ahead of us to do that. But I do think people are starting to consider all of their options now and it's our ambition to really try and work to earn people's trust and to earn their support and you know we really want to have an impact on the next okay. government. Okay, very briefly, there's been an exodus of TDs um, particularly I suppose coming from Fine Gael and they've either reached retirement age or they spent a long time in politics and, and two of your TDs, Roisin Shortall and Catherine Murphy, have served a long time in politics. Have they confirmed to you that they will definitely stand in the next election? Yeah, they're two of the most long-standing, hard-working and, you know, I think well-respected TDs in the country, so we're, we're so lucky um, and they've confirmed publicly that that's their plan. All right. Holly Cairns, thank you for coming in to us this evening. Thank you. We're going to leave that there for now. After the break, Fulcher Ireland warns the housing of asylum seekers and hotels is having a significant impact on the tourism sector. We debate. You're very welcome back. Well, almost a thousand people who came to Ireland seeking shelter are now being left homeless as they wait to be accommodated by the state. According to the latest figures from the Department of Integration, 970 international protection applicants currently do not have a roof over their heads. The majority are now sleeping in tents on the streets in Dublin. Meanwhile, Fulcher Ireland has said the housing of asylum seekers in hotels is having a significant impact on the tourism sector. Well, to discuss this further, I'm joined by Fianna Foyle Senator and Spokesperson on Housing, Mary Fitzpatrick, Clare Independent TD, Michael McNamara, Alice Leahy, Director of Services at the Alice Leahy Trust, Dr Kevin Griffin, Senior Lecturer in Tourism at TU Dublin, and by Kevin Doyle, Executive Editor with the Irish Independent. You're all very welcome to the programme. To start with you first, Kevin, this is really since early December, isn't it, that the government have said they cannot guarantee that they will be able to provide accommodation to these international protection applicants, most of whom are male. And, and this is now what we're seeing. Yeah, and the numbers are rising. It started with a trickle uh, as hotel accommodation became full and the options that the government had became more and more limited. Um, the trickle has now continued over weeks and weeks and weeks, and that's why we're going to hit the, the thousand mark probably in days now. Um, and it's tricky because what we're seeing, anyone who's been around Dublin since the Christmas period, that you're seeing popping up effectively tented villages. Um, which if you go back years, the idea that there was tents on the street was kind of something you didn't see that much of in Dublin. Now there are two or three places in the city where there are dozens of tents uh, at one time, people without any facilities trying to live on the street. Um, 
And it's a big problem for the government now because the more people see that, the more they become conscious that this is actually happening. And I think most people, and I'll choose my words carefully here, mm. those tents are a blight on the city. The people are not. But in order to do something about the tents, the government have to be able to do something for the people. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. People that are sleeping in them because they have no other option, and as it stands... They haven't found the solution. We're going to talk about tourism uh, later on, and that's going to put a bigger squeeze on the accommodation available as we head into the summer months. So the problem's only going to get more difficult. Um, Alice, you help some of these individuals. What challenges are they facing? Uh, well, I, I should ju first of all say that we've always worked with people who are at the extreme edge of society. They're sleeping out in parks. These are the people we've been working with for years. And these are the people who continue to sleep out. And because we have seen outsiders. tents. Anybody who's been around Dublin will have seen tents over the last uh, yeah, 10 I know, years. But I just need to make that tents. point yep. that, you know, homelessness is very complex. And it's not all... A, the, the discussion has changed that it's all now about the Ukrainians and the people seeking shelter. And, and they need all of those services. But let's not forget about the people who were sleeping out in parks and tents anyway. And we've dealt with people who would come from maybe 30 different countries across the world. And yes, it is terrible to see all those tents there. And it is common to a lot of cities throughout the developed world. I mean, I was thinking today with looking for very basic shelters, a hospital that's very dear to me was Bagot Street Hospital, 10 minutes walk up from where the tents are. I trained there. I was night sister there. With consultants, I set up the intensive care unit there before I decided to work with people who were homeless a lifetime ago. Even though there may be issues around how suitable the building is, surely there are showers there, there are toilets there. And I think it's a scandal that it's lying idle while you have people uh, sleeping in tents just 10 minutes walk down the road. Yeah, Mary, it is a scandal, isn't it? Yeah, yeah absolutely. And I suppose Alice mm. articulates it very well and has dedicated her life and to the work that you've done, Alice. It's a tribute to you and everybody who works with you. Um, it's unprecedented, Kira. It really is unprecedented. And uh, we've taken in, what, more than 150,000 uh, between Ukrainians and people seeking international protection. And uh, the, the priority has to be to respond to them in a humanitarian way, um, process their applications as promptly as possible, provide them with accommodation and support. To but the at the moment, there is no accommodation and uh, there's no sign of accommodation coming for what's, uh, uh, these 1,000 individuals. Well, well, I think everything is being done to try and source accommodation. That's an ongoing process. The numbers change all the time and they have just continued mm -hmm. to increase over the last year and a half, two years. And we've 
we've seen it. We've seen it right around the country and I think credit has to be given to not just Alice but people all over Ireland who have welcomed Ukrainians, who've welcomed people seeking international protection, people coming from war and famine and, and all sorts of disastrous situations. Um, and we have to continue to, to meet that demand. Um, we have to continue to respond in a humanitarian way. And, and we to... have to keep relying on the private sector to provide accommodation. That's the well, current short-term it... solution. That's what the government's currently doing. Well, well it's, it's not all the private sector, Kira. It hasn't been all the private sector. There's been a huge community response. OK, and it's the majority, with... I think. It's all about 75%, isn't uh, it? Well, well, there's been a huge community response, um, whether it's a, 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 a private sector operating the facility on behalf of the state, the state is still funding the provision of that accommodation, the provision of those services and support. And we, and we have to, in an emergency, avail of every available um, accommodation. And How long do you think easy. you will be relying on those uh, private accommodation providers that you say, I accept the state is paying for, mm -hmm. but they are private accommodation providers? Well, I, I, I suppose, how long will the emergency last, Kira? I don't think any of us have a crystal ball mm -hmm. and none of us can say with any certainty when the emergency will end. What we can do is ensure that while the emergency persists, that we persist in using every effort to accommodate people and to meet their needs. OK, Kevin Griffin, we're hearing from Fulcher Ireland today in one of their reports that 13% of tourism accommodation that is registered, just what is yeah. registered with um, Fulcher Ireland is now tied up in these public contracts. You've been looking at those statistics in a bit more detail. Yeah, if it, it varies from county to county. Michael will know clearly that 30% of hotel tourism accommodation, registered accommodation in County Clare is in direct provision or is providing accommodation for asylum seekers, refugees, migrants. Um, that means that 30% of the tourism income to the County of Clare doesn't exist because there's no tourists. Mm -hmm. So if you're working and, and, you know, it's hurting way beyond the accommodation sector. You know, if you've got a coffee shop, a news agent, a souvenir shop, a visitor attraction um, in the vicinity of a hotel that now no longer is taking in tourists, that's seriously damaging your business. How damaging would you say it is? There's places closing down. Mm. You know, numbers are down in visitor attractions all over the country. You know, while, while, while the tourism industry nationally is recovering from COVID, um, there are points and locations where, you know, there's serious damage being done to the and tourism And what other business. locations? You mentioned Clare there. Uh, Mead, for example, um, is above 20%. Mayo, you know, some... And if you look at Mayo and Clare, they have large portions of the national hotel stock. So it's not just, you know, there are other counties which have much lower, but, you know, we're, we're hearing about the D Hotel. Um, I did a bit of calculating today and it's about 5 million. If we go on the average occupancy rate, the average pay that people are paying in the country for a hotel, it's about 5.7 million purely in the, the cost of the bed, bed night that's being lost if the D Hotel has moved over. So that's 5.7 million not going there. Aside from restaurants, theatres, galleries, visitor attractions, the vicinity. And this is something, Michael, that you have been bringing up for some time, but clearly mm. the contracts being offered here to the hotels are very difficult to turn down. Yeah, no, of course they are. I mean, if you're a hotel and you're being offered, uh, I heard figures bandied about €300 Euros per night for Drada. I don't know that they're correct. But they were being spoken of in the Dáil today. Um, if you're being offered that for every night of the year, for every room, well, it's, of course, it's hugely attractive and you're going to take it. Um, but, I mean, it is, 
not just detrimental to uh, the community in the town in which a hotel is based, but I mean the broader community. I mean, West Clare is very heavily reliant on tourism. It took a huge hit during um, COVID <clears throat> and now it's taking this hit again. It's not just, as I say, Liston Varna, which is a, I, I would have thought the Innes Diamond electoral area probably has the highest proportion of, of um, asylum seekers, or not asylum seekers, but uh, beneficiaries of t temporary protection, uh, Ukrainians of anywhere in the in the country, but it's the whole western seaboard of Clare is affected, and indeed I think it's the same in South Kerry, it's 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 parts of Galway as well, Donegal, so it is a, a, a very big problem. I mean, I've been, it is understandable that the government will take whatever is available, that they did that two years ago, but it is now two years ago, and I mean, I, I did say that, you know, people are welcoming, people are giving a good welcome, people are still welcoming, people are still understanding, but people have to live, people have to, ha we have to have a functioning economy, not just in Dublin, but we have to have a functioning economy in Clare as well, and we have, uh, people deserve an opportunity to have a functioning economy. I mean, it's also not good to, to move people to places like Clare if you're hoping that they're going to integrate long term, because the, the, the reality is, nobody perhaps wants to say it, but the majority of people from Ukraine, at least a significant minority at the very least are going to stay. A lot of people who are coming here to claim asylum, <clears throat> obviously a minority will be successful, but everybody who's coming here is hoping to come to stay. And to do that, they're going to have to integrate and get work. And there isn't work for those numbers of people in West Clare. So, you know, we're going to have to match, if we're serious about integration, unless we want to create ghettos, unless we want to create division and resentment, we're going to have to address this. And, and we need to start addressing that two Kevin, years ago. That that resentment is going to build as we're coming towards the summer months when capacity is down, and if capacity is down, prices go up. Yeah, well, the, the, with the hotel sector, there's an obvious supply and demand thing, which is that if there is less hotel rooms, the price for the average Irish punter going on their holidays down the country to Clare or May or wherever it is, it actually becomes less attainable for them because there are less rooms in the first place. Mm. And then suddenly they find maybe for them and their two kids that they're paying three, four hundred quid a night because if that's what the government is paying for similar hotel beds in the town, that's what they'll end up paying. And it all feeds into this, this uncomfortableness now that has happened here because this wasn't planned for. But we probably, well, not probably, we do now need a plan for what's going to happen next. Yeah, and that is the problem here. It, it wasn't planned for, and people would say, actually, it could have been planned for, and I don't want to get into the detail of the Catherine Day report because it's been well covered on this programme that had recommended um, that accommodation centres be built two years ago, and that hasn't been touched yet. In terms of the new plan, we have heard there's a new plan coming from Roderick O'Gorman's office, but still no sign of it. Yeah, the minister is uh, in, in the process with his cabinet colleagues of finalising that plan. And it is a, a version of the, you know, our response to the Catherine Day uh, review. I think it's two years too late, many would say. You'd agree with that, surely, Mary? Well, I think, to be fair to the minister, it has been an evolving and changing situation all of the time. Um, and I don't think anybody could accuse the minister of not having responded as best within a very dynamic situation. But just to get to the point, I, I, I think it's important because I, I talk to people from Clare as well in that. You know, there are other counties, I should say. <laughs> absolutely. Kerry, <impacted>. <laughs> Donegal, all those. Oh, so many of those counties that do rely on tourism, particularly that busy summer season to support all of those businesses, the busy, And that's actually, that's funny. That's, Kira, one of the things that has been said to me. The busy summer season is the real pinch point where some of these hotels were hotels that were not being, uh, actually many of them were vacant for maybe six months of the year. They had very low occupancy. Is that true, um, Kevin? A lot of these we're hotels were, were, were vacant anyhow, so it's only a couple of months in the summer that 
that they're impacted? For, for a long portion of last year, we had 81% occupancy across the country. But a lot of that would be because make, of that but accommodation. But if you're a hotel, but, you're but, but the, money during the summer, yeah. then you're sunk because you need to make money at that period of time. And if you run a restaurant, if you run a cafe, if you run most businesses along the western seaboard of Ireland, certainly in West Clare, you make your money during the summer. And if you can't but, make but it, then you're in I, real I trouble. Argue, less so now. You know, the, the Wild Atlantic Way, various other initiatives have broadened the season, the season much, much longer. So, you yeah, know, but, but, but coach tourism was also hugely important. Yeah. And I mean, this is, will be the third summer that coach tourism couldn't happen. I hear that mentioned now in Drogheda, and I, I see ministers taking it on board because it's Drogheda. But, you know, when we were saying this about Clare, it didn't seem so important. You know, coach tourism is predominantly during the high season. Okay, well, Alice, there is, is a huge contrast because, Alice, there, there, there is a clear tension here as now, isn't there? Oh, there is, there is but I think, uh, I think, one, I, I think uh, politicians are under extreme pressure and I, I think it is time there are good ideas at many levels, but I think we need some kind of housing czar to bring heads together, sit around the table and see what can be done. And I think there's also another Do you have issue. faith in this report that Roderick O'Gorman is going to bring for these new accommodation well, I, centres, I, however many? so long now. I have seen many ministers come and go, many reports produce gathering dust. Uh, so I, I remain to be convinced, but I am clear on three things, that we can't have a magic wand. There is no magic wand to solve the whole problem. Mm -hmm. A lot of the problems arrive in Dublin because people go to capital cities, and that's where we're seeing every Thing. And uh, also that we are also always going to have people who are homeless. But I am also concerned that we have an awful lot of hard-working politicians, um, people working in the media, people working in the front line, who are becoming very disillusioned. And I think that's terrible because that will affect the mental health of people. And we need to be hopeful. Okay, Michael, yeah, we have a. a you have a right to accommodation while you're in the asylum system. We have more and more people going into the asylum system, but we don't have more and more people coming out. We have unusually a three-stage asylum system in Ireland. Most mm. countries have two. You apply at first instance, you have a right to appeal, and then you have a humanitarian leave to remain. And while the first two, there are very clear figures, the minister is not making decisions on humanitarian leave to remain. People are waiting, not months, people are waiting years. The first two stages... So they've stages, addressed, in fairness, I think the, they have addressed the first two stages. They've the become first a more efficient. Two, the first two stages have become more efficient. The minister won't even give figures. I've been asking for figures how long people are waiting for their decision on humanitarian leave to remain. So they're sitting in a direct provision centre where they have a right to accommodation. Uh, there are more and more people coming who could be taking that accommodation if their claim was determined and the minister is not making decisions. And of course, the longer people are here, the greater the prospect is that they will ultimately warrant humanitarian leave to remain because they'll have put down roots. That's what people do over time. Mm. So there's a real problem in the Department of Justice and the minister is sort of somehow distracting from that by saying, oh, well, we've added two safe countries, one of which is utterly irrelevant in terms of the statistics. You know, instead of actually providing the figures on how long people are waiting for okay. her to make a decision, it's not, it's, you know, and this does, is a large part of the problem and it's possibly what is attractive. One of, one of the factors that is attractive about Ireland is the delay in processing asylum applications. Mary, do you want to respond to that briefly? Yeah, I, I believe the Minister for Justice has made uh, adjustments and there has been an acceleration in terms of the first no, two stages. The Sorry. first two stages. Uh, the third stage does have to be accelerated. But I the second stage has nothing to do with it. It's independent. 
And the first stage is a separate office. The one she has complete control of is the last one. And it's the one that she's done nothing about. And, and I would urge her to accelerate. OK, just one point I want to bring up from that Fulcher Ireland uh, survey that we're talking about today, Kevin, was that 80% of the businesses surveyed, and it wasn't just accommodation providers, it was tour operators, it was restaurants, etc. They said that they expected the revenue to be as good as last year or better than last year in the coming year, which would suggest that there's many within this uh, industry and within tourism who are not worried about the lack of bed capacity. It's not that they're not worried about bed capacity. They know that the tourists who are coming are going to spend money, costs have gone up. They're, they're predicting a good year. But what they're looking to the future is that we don't have enough accommodation for the future. If we want to increase our tourism business, um, you know, it's, it's a, a, a no-brainer for government. To, the, the money that comes in is, you know, we're talking about billions here, not small money. Um, but the investment in hotel accommodation has been miserable over the last number of years. And okay. Catherine, Martin, Catherine Martin has tasked Board Fulcher to engage with the sector, with the tourism sector, specifically on this issue, and to ensure and, and to bring forward proposals. She ring-fenced some funding in the budget for 2024, 10 million, to actually support the, the small cafes, the small galleries. She's engaging and she is bringing forward... So much in uh, 10 million in terms of the number of businesses that have been affected as a drop no, no, in the ocean. I, 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 that, that's, Are there further supports needed for those? businesses. Let's That's say you're sector. looking at the sumter months yeah. and you're saying mm -hmm. look at there's 33% less people going to be able to come and take beds in County Clare. My business that relies on tourism is going to be impacted. Yeah. Do they need further supports? They're in the process of communicating that to the Minister. She has tasked Board Fulcher to engage directly with the sector on that issue, on that specific question, mm. and to come back to her with their asks, with their suggestions. It's not for politicians to tell the tourism sector okay. what they, they need. Like Kevin, around the, VAT rate. Okay. The, the one thing I would Nobody say listens. that's quite interesting from the study that, that was done is actually we've talked about immigration. And if you actually look at the concerns for the, the tourism sector going ahead, the weather was higher on the list than immigration, as was a lot of the cost factors such as cost of labour, cost of accommodation for Okay, staff. sorry. I'm going to have to leave that there for now. But my thanks to Mary Fitzpatrick, to Michael McNamara, to Alice Leahy and to Kevin Griffin. Uh, Kevin Doyle's going to be staying with me. And after the break, the latest crackdown on dodgy boxes. Do stay with us. You're very welcome back. Well, 22 legal warnings have been issued to operators of illegal dodgy box services across the state. The Federation Against Copyright Theft said the latest wave of action focuses on those selling modified or fully loaded smart TV devices such as Amazon Fire Sticks. Well, joining me to discuss this are technology journalist Emmett Ryan and Kevin Doyle from the Irish Independent. You're very welcome to the programme, Emmett. For anybody at home who's not watching on a dodgy box... What is it and how does it work? Well, essentially, it's a way typically for typically pay TV channels or for other stuff to get it by paying an awful lot less. So you're to the service provider who's technically breaking the law, just so we're clear here in advance. They'll tell you it's usually an Amazon Fire Stick or a similar device. You'd plug into one of the sockets at the back of your TV. That way you can access all your premium channels and the like. And naturally, if you're a TV provider or one of the people who's supplying those, you don't want that happening because you want them paying you money instead. So okay, so you could get your, your Skies, your Netflix, your Apple TVs, all of those are provided. But more of the TV channels than the Netflixes and Apples, although you can get those for sure. Uh, but yeah, they're all provided. And so Sky Sports is obviously an awful lot every month for people like I pay for, but you know, not everybody wants to, I know. But at the same time, some people are going to go, well, if I can get it cheap, and sure, what's the harm I'm doing? And that's typically the approach that these people are selling these boxes on from. And what are they costing people? 
Uh, that varies wildly. Like I know some can be as low as eight euro a month, like from some services I've seen. But also the interesting part with these is while they're typically associated with being a thing you stick in the back of your TV, a lot more of them increasingly are being sold just directly through your computer. So it's a service that you basically would cast from, say, your phone or your computer onto your television, which is a lot harder to crack down on than a physical device where, you know, if you're someone tracking stuff, you can go, well, I know this physical stick went from this place to this place and I can track the person that way. So it's complicated and it's a bit of a sort of, a, I suppose, what's the term, cost of doing business for a lot of these providers because they don't obviously want to like sort of have anyone stealing any of their services ever, but they also know they can only crack down so much. So that's why it's cease and desist letters being sent this time. We have seen prosecutions before, but we'll never, in my view anyway, we'll never see a prosecution of an end user of like the person watching the TV because part of it is whack-a-mole as in you just can't get, get everybody that way, but also it just wouldn't be that popular in, in large part. So the real goal when they're doing these cease and desist, when they're doing these crackdowns, is just make fewer people consider getting a dodgy box. They see this kind of going, okay, I might get in trouble if I do this. So a lot of this is very much housekeeping on behalf of the, the producers. I know Fact sent out their, their letters today, but it's really just to make sure it doesn't grow any more than it already has. Do we have any sense of the numbers of end users in this country and the number of actual uh, providers of these, as you say, illegal dodgy boxes? Well, the end user one is extremely hard to guess. Like, I know facts come out with numbers, but being honest about it, like, it's because of the nature of it. Like, you're obviously not tracking your customer numbers, at least not in a way that you're going to be able to share with the tax man if you're doing this. Uh, you know, so it, could, it will obviously be in the tens of thousands, but be, going beyond that, it's pure guesswork at that point. And naturally, if you're on the side of the provider, you're going to make it look as big as possible, make it look as big a problem as possible. So you're sort of incentivized in many respects to guesstimate a very, very large number where... In reality, for people who are doing this, most of them are ones who either A, wouldn't uh, pay in advance for these, so not really customers being lost, but also there's a small but not insignificant minority of these customers who are buying them because honestly, in many respects, they're easier to use to access stuff than some of the legal services are. Like I know because I was trying to watch a movie the other night, which I have got on one of my services, The Menu, uh, the Ray Fiennes movie from last year, and I honestly for the life of me couldn't remember what it was on. Whereas with the dodgy box, it actually would have been easier to find. No, I don't have one, just to be clear. But that's the thing. It's getting so complicated that sometimes the dodgy boxes actually make life easier, unfortunately. OK, but we're not promoting them. But it no, is. No, no, no. It is, Kevin Doyle, as Emmett pointed out, it is illegal to sell them. It's also illegal to, to use them. And yet, would you say that in Ireland, it has become sort of an acceptable form of lawbreaking? Yeah, so there was this study five, four or five years ago that suggested 170,000 people have them, I suspect it's far higher than that. And that's anecdotally... It gets lower, to be honest, because it'd be incentivised for facts to put it as high as possible. Like True, but I think anecdotally, uh, I, is there anybody sitting at home on their couch tonight who doesn't know two or three or four people? Because it's this weird thing. So we, we've this debate big about the RT TV licence fee at the moment. And, you know, it is now becoming slowly acceptable to say that you don't pay your TV licence, whereas once upon a time it was, ah, you should, now you should. Um, the fire sticks and the rest of it, in my experience, is something very different. It's when you go play five aside or you're hanging out, making small talk in the playground. Mm. People brag about this. Oh, yeah. They, yeah, they really do. This because is they're stealing. getting away with something illegal. They exactly. are stealing, but it's a safe steal because they know there's no TV license inspector going to come to their door and actually ask, can they see the fire stick or how they're getting their, their Sky Sports and the television? And they don't feel bad because it's big corporations that they're stealing from. It's not necessarily the Irish public service media or any of that. You don't get on the moral high ground about it. So I think it's, it's actually hugely common. The figures, yeah, OK, we don't know. But it's so common 
and every time there's a crackdown, mm. kind of does feel like an ad because there's parents at home tonight asking their kids, how do I get one of them? Does. does the crackdown work though? Do these cease and desist letters that have been sent to these illegal providers today, will they do that? Will Largely they speaking, those providers will stop pretty much immediately because most of them are people who've never done serious, as those like high level crime, so to speak. So they'll get you real jail time. And most of them are kind of going, right, we've had our fun, we'll stop now before we get into actually any trouble. They've had their fun, they've made, made a good bit of money They've made too. a good bit of money, but typically I think it's about 80% success rate with these. But the other thing, just to warn anyone who's considering getting one at home is there's a lot of risk of actual malware, like IT security issues. So be careful if you're even considering getting one of these. All right, Emmett Ryan and Kevin Doyle, thank you for joining me on that. Well, that's it from us here on The Tonight Show this evening. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms and you can find us on Instagram and TikTok tonight, DMTV. But from all of the late team here, good night. Take care.